Section 1 of Homiletics, Classification of Divisions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Homiletics, Classification of Divisions by William M. Paxton. Classification of Divisions. As we have classified sermons not according to any theoretical arrangement, but according to the kinds of sermons in actual use among approved sermonizers, we propose to classify divisions in the same way. As there are many kinds of sermons, so there are many kinds of divisions. Anyone who will take the trouble to examine the division in actual use will find that the methods of divisions are very numerous and might be arranged into very many classes with distinct points of difference between them. More careful study, however, will show you that they may all be reduced to the two well-known classes, topical and textual divisions, with a number of subdivisions under each general class. A. Topical divisions. To promote clearness, let me ask you to observe that there are three words in common use in rhetoric which have the same meaning and are used interchangeably. These words are subject, theme, and topic. Subject is from the Latin word subjectum meaning placed under, and hence is used to designate the matter or point of thought that is placed under consideration. Theme is from the Greek word thema, meaning that which is laid down or proposed for discussion. Topic is derived from the Greek word topos, a place, or topikos, pertaining to a place or locality, a common place of thought, or the thought which we locate as the point of consideration or discussion. Hence, the three words are identical in their meaning. Some writers prefer the word subject and speak of subject sermons. Others prefer the word theme and treat of theme sermons. We prefer the word topic and hence use the designation topical sermons and topical divisions. A topical division is the division of a topic. A text is chosen and treated in the introduction so as to expound its meaning and to show that the topic is the precise point of thought contained in the text, or that your topic is fairly warranted from the meaning of the text and expresses its spirit. The text is then dropped and the topic divided, and the several points of this topical division are pursued in the discourse. This makes a strong and clear distinction between the topical and textual division. In the one case the topic is divided, in the other the text is divided. The textual division is the more scriptural. This makes the text the subject of the sermon, whilst the topic is an abstract subject evolved from the text. Dr. Hoppen says, quote, We grant that topical preaching has done a great work and will continue to do so, but its exclusive use has engendered many errors in preaching and has sometimes led the preacher astray from the true object of preaching. It has, above all, spoiled variety and freedom. End quote. Again, he says, quote, a topical sermon requires an artistic handling like an oration. It is something, after all, outside the text, though it should be in strict accordance with it. It requires brief texts containing complete themes and themes capable of didactic development, but this style of sermonizing is apt to lead to the neglect of the word of God. The sermon, in fact, hangs on the proposition or topic instead of the text, end quote. Let us endeavour to get a clear idea of the special design and method of a topical division. A topical sermon presents one single subject, and the division is the analysis of this single theme. Dr. Shedd says, homiletics, page 145, quote, A topical sermon is occupied with a single definite theme that can be completely enunciated in a brief statement. 
it approaches nearest to the unity, symmetry, and convergence of the oration proper. It should contain one leading thought rather than several. With this general idea of a topical sermon, let us notice the different forms which it may assume. We indicate three classes of topical divisions. First, simple topical divisions. We have often a definite and complete subject expressed by a single word, as, for example, the commonplace topics of theology, sin, atonement, regeneration, repentance, faith, or the fruits of Christian duty, obedience, prayer, benevolence, or the characteristics of Christian experience, love, joy, peace, meekness, temperance. These are a few examples of a large multitude of complete subjects or topics expressed by a single word. When you wish to treat such a topic, you choose your text, expound it, draw your topic from your text, then, dropping the text, you divide your topic. The usual and best method of division is by an analysis of its parts. Suppose your topic is regeneration, you analyse the topic and get as the results 1. The nature of regeneration, 2. The necessity of regeneration, 3. The author of regeneration, 4. The means of regeneration, 5. The evidences of regeneration. A simple topic presents a complete subject to your mind, and a proper analysis exhibits all its parts. You can treat in the sermon any or all the points included in the analysis, and you can express them in such language as you please. I have adopted in the foregoing analysis the commonplace terms of theology for the sake of clearness, but each preacher should be encouraged to select his own forms of expression. It may make this method of division plainer to give another illustration. Dr. van Oosterzee takes as his topic the resurrection and shows 1. its essential character, 2. its certainty, 3. its glory. If your subject is unbelief, your analysis might be 1. its nature, 2. its causes, 3. its sinfulness, 4. its consequences. These, or any other points included in the subject, may be introduced into the division. This topical method of division is adapted specially to larger and comprehensive subjects, there are times when a pastor wishes to present one of the great doctrines in its completeness and in the connection of all its parts. For such purposes, this division is better than any other. This was the character of Whitfield's great sermon on regeneration, which he preached so often and with such great results. If a single point of a subject is to be treated, it is better to adopt the propositional method, as we shall afterwards show. The advantages of this method of division are, first, it disciplines the preacher's mind to comprehensive views of truth. Second, it gives the people systematic views of its truth in its larger and wider connections. The danger of this method is that the sermon may be dry. It may be a mere skeleton of dry bones with but little skin or flesh to cover them. If so, the preacher does not understand his business. He has attempted to put in all the thoughts that belong to the subject instead of selecting the salient points and presenting them in a rapid and striking view. In such a sermon, much of the skill consists in knowing what not to say. Second, topico-propositional divisions. The second class of topical sermons consists of those in which the topic is announced in the form of a proposition. As in the former class, we divided the simple topic, as in this class we divide the proposition. Hence we may call it a topico-propositional division. Let us then notice what a proposition is in its rhetorical meaning and in what its division consists. A proposition from pro and pono is something placed before us for consideration. 
In logic and rhetoric it has its special and distinctive meaning, but in homiletics the proposition is the part of the sermon which announces or sets before the minds of the people in distinct and formal statement the truth which is proposed for consideration or discussion. Quote, the proposition, says Dr. Shedd, should be stated in the most concise manner possible. It should be the condensation and epitome of the whole discourse, and should therefore be characterized by the utmost density of meaning. A propositional sentence is very different from any ordinary sentence. Its phraseology ought to be as near perfection as possible. The proposition of a sermon ought to be eminent for the nice exactness of its expression and the hard finish of its diction. End quote. Dr. Shedd, Homiletics, page 184. Dr. Fisk, in his Manual of Preaching, says, quote, In the proposition of a sermon there should be no words that need any explanation, no figurative, technical, or theological terms which are not fully understood by the people. The statement of the proposition should be so simple, both in word and structure, that the thought shall shine through as clearly as the sun through the atmosphere. End quote. The rhetoricians distinguish two kinds of propositions, logical and rhetorical propositions. Both these forms of propositions occur frequently in sermonizing, and it is important that we understand their use. The subject or topic which we propose to treat may be thrown into either of these forms, and it is necessary for us to understand which form will be most advantageous. A logical proposition is an affirmation or denial of something, or, in other words, it is a judgment either affirmative or negative expressed in words. Hence, a logical proposition demands proof. God is love is a logical proposition. It has a subject spoken of, God, and a predicate, that which is said, is love. God is love. Hence the logical proposition binds us down to prove either the affirmation or negation. As distinguished from this, a rhetorical proposition is more general. It is a single statement of any fact or truth. It is any form of expression by which the subject of a discourse is announced. Thus, the immutability of God is a rhetorical proposition, or the unsearchableness of God's judgments, to put this distinction in its simplest form. If we announce as our topic the justice of God, we have a rhetorical proposition, but if we put it in an affirmative form, God is just, we have a logical proposition. This seems very simple, and you may think that it makes little difference which form you adopt, but in actual work the difference in the division and structure of the sermon will be very great. Dr. Phelps, Theory of Preaching, page 330, shows this by a very interesting statement. He says, quote, It is not a matter of indifference whether we select the rhetorical or logical proposition. The endowment of the Hollis Professorship in Harvard requires the incumbent to preach to the students on the divinity of Christ. The report was once current that the last occupant of the chair preached against the divinity of Christ. If he did so, the design of the founder was frustrated by so small a matter as the difference between a rhetorical and a logical proposition. End quote. Having seen what a proposition is and the difference between these two forms of propositions, in frequent use in sermonizing, we are now prepared to ask how are they to be divided and what is the advantage of each? We notice A. The logical proposition. Suppose your topic is drawn from your text in the form of a logical proposition. How is it to be treated as regards division? We answer in several ways. We indicate two methods. 1. The divisions should be made with special reference to the proof of the affirmation or denial made in the proposition. Frequently, the division consists of the various proofs by which the proposition is supported. The proposition expresses a judgment or makes an affirmation, and the one thing it calls us to do is to prove it. 
Theremin, the court preacher in Berlin, has a sermon on the resurrection of Christ. His topic he expresses in the form of a logical proposition thus, The resurrection of Christ is a powerful incentive to repentance. His divisions are the several proofs of this assertion. It is so, one, because it proves there is an invisible world, two, because it shows that after death we pass into that invisible world, three, because it demonstrates that our destiny in that world depends upon the relation in which one stands to Christ. Another fine example in which the divisions are the several proofs of the proposition is in a sermon by Bishop South. Text, Numbers 32-23, Be sure your sin will find you out. The topic is in the form of a logical proposition, Concealment of sin is no security to the sinner. 1. Because the sinner's very confidence of secrecy is the cause of his detection. 2. Because there is sometimes a providential concurrence of unexpected events which leads to his detection. 3. Because one sin is sometimes the means of discovering another. 4. Because the sinner may unwittingly discover himself through frenzy or distraction. 5. Because the sinner may be forced to discover himself by his own conscience. 6. Because the sinner may be smitten by some notable judgment that discloses his guilt and 7. Because his guilt will follow him into another world if he should chance to escape in this. This may suffice to show the division of a logical proposition by proofs. The several proofs of the point affirmed, or the disproofs of the point denied, are the divisions of the sermon. This is a favourite method in the pulpit in all closely argued sermons in which a single point is taken, and the whole work of the sermon is to demonstrate a truth or refute an error. 2. By explanation or illustration. A second method of dividing a logical proposition is by explanation or illustration. The division consists in showing the different respects in which the point affirmed is true. For example, we select from Dr. Kidder the proposition drawn from Deuteronomy 4 verse 35, God is infinitely and gloriously perfect. This is a logical proposition. It does not need proof, for no one doubts it but it contains an important and edifying truth which may be brought out by explaining in what respects God is infinitely and gloriously perfect. Thus he is so, one, as to his eternity, two, as to his omnipresence, three, as to his omnipotence, four, as to his wisdom. Sorin, the great reformed French preacher, has a sermon on the logical proposition revealed religion is infinitely superior to natural religion. His division explains the several respects in which this superiority consists. It is superior in the knowledge which it gives us, one, of the nature and attributes of God, two, of the nature and obligations of man, three, of the means of appeasing the remorse of conscience, four, of the future state. Another simple and striking division of a logical proposition by way of illustration is from Psalm 18, verse 30, the word of the Lord is tried. One, by time, history, 2. By philosophy, 3. By science, 4. By experience, its adaptation to the wants of men. This may suffice to show the different ways in which the logical proposition may be treated as to division. The advantages of the logical proposition are, first, that it gives the most perfect unity to the discourse. Second, it stimulates the mind of the preacher by thinking to a single point and urges him to industry in gathering the proofs to sustain the affirmation to which he has committed himself. B. The rhetorical proposition. The second form of proposition is the rhetorical proposition. Let me show its use and the method of its division. 
As a general rule, a topic may be announced either as logical or as a rhetorical proposition. For example, the topic is the same whether I adopt the logical form and say, all men are sinners, or the rhetorical form, the universal sinfulness of man. But there is a great practical difference between the two forms. The first, the logical proposition, binds me to an argument about a single point. But an argument is not always needed. Some subjects are spoiled by argument. Quote, there are truths, says Dr. Fisk, whose beauty and sweetness are crushed out of them by forcing them into logical form. End quote. Besides, there may be a large field of truth in your topic which lies outside of proof, which it will be edifying to treat. Hence, there are many subjects to which the form of a rhetorical proposition is better adapted. It opens a larger field. It does not necessitate proof. It presents a topic in such a general statement that we can treat it in any or all the aspects of a general theme. Thus, if the proposition is the holiness of God, it opens to us the whole compass of that wide field. Dr. Fisk says, quote, It is desirable with some subjects that the preacher have a wider range of materials than he can have when shut within the walls of a logical form of statement. End quote. It must be observed, however, that while a rhetorical proposition presents a general subject in all its range of thought, it does not exclude proofs, and sometimes the more general points may be treated and followed by the proofs of the special point implied in the text. To familiarize your mind with the forms of rhetorical propositions and to show their use in the statement of every kind of subject, even the most practical, I may mention a few rhetorical propositions. The preciousness of Christ, the sin of unbelief, the sanctification of the Sabbath, the relation of repentance as a duty to repentance as a gift, the power of conscience. Sometimes the proposition may be stated in an interrogative form, is the duty of repentance universal? With this understanding of the rhetorical proposition, we may now inquire how it should be divided. We answer, as it presents a subject in all its aspects, you are at liberty to divide it very much as you please, only so that your lines of thought lie within the compass of your theme. Your division may take shape from the particular purpose for which you have chosen your topic, or from the shape in which the subject lies in your own mind, or from your own taste or genius. These propositions have been treated in such a large variety of ways that it will be impossible to indicate many of the forms which such divisions assume, but we may mention one or two. 1. By way of instruction. Suppose your proposition is the purpose of the Incarnation. Your division should indicate, for the instruction of the people, the several points included in the purpose of the Incarnation. Its purpose was, 1. To make God visible, 2. To show us God as a person, 3. To exhibit God as an object of love, 4. To make an atonement for sin, 5. To set us an example of human life, 2. The division may be by way of investigation. Thus Jeremy Taylor takes the text John 9 verse 31, Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshipper of God, and doth his will, him he heareth. From this text he draws the rhetorical proposition, The Conditions of Prevailing Prayer. With a view to investigation under the teaching of the text, he says, We shall consider, 1. What are those conditions which are required in every person who prays, the want of which makes the prayer to be sin? 2. What are the conditions of a good man's prayers, the absence of which causes his prayers to return empty? 3. What degrees and circumstances of piety are required to make a man fit to be an intercessor for others? 4. What are the indications by which we may judge whether God hath heard our prayers or not?
3. The division of a rhetorical proposition may be explanatory. Richard Winter Hamilton takes the text, Galatians 1 verse 8, Though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. From this he takes the proposition, Christianity inviolable. His division is to explain the different respects in which Christianity is inviolable. It is so because, one, its divine origin cannot be controverted, two, its efficacy cannot be denied, three, its authority cannot be superseded, four, its existence cannot be endangered. This may suffice to show some of the many ways in which a rhetorical proposition may be divided. These examples are enough to stimulate thought and ingenuity in the construction of such divisions for yourselves, while a more elaborate enumeration of methods might produce confusion. Third, compound propositional divisions. The third class of topical divisions consists of compound propositional divisions. In the former instances, a single proposition was drawn from the text, but in this class of divisions, two or more, or a series of propositions are drawn from the text. In this case, the propositions themselves are your divisions. A very large number of sermons are divided in this way. It was a favourite method with all the great Puritan divines, and it is largely used by many of the best thinkers in the present day. The special caution to be observed in this kind of division is to maintain the unity of the discourse by raising only such propositions as are connected vitally with the text. Propositions are sometimes hung so loosely around the text that, although they are true and scriptural, they have so little affinity with the text as to lose their impressiveness. A fine example of this kind of division we find in a sermon by Dr. Alexander McLaren of Manchester, England, who is now one of the great preachers of the world. His text is Matthew 17, verses 19 and 20. Then came the disciples of Jesus apart, and said, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. From this text, in its connection, he starts four propositions. 1. The gospel is a power to cast out evil spirits. 2. The condition of exercising this power is faith. 3. Our faith is ever threatened by a subtle unbelief. 4. Our faith can be maintained only by a constant devotion and rigid self-denial. Another example we take from the sermons of Bishop Simpson of the Methodist Church, one of the greatest preachers of the present generation. His text is Isaiah 60 verse 18, But thou shalt call her walls salvation and her gates praise. From this text he draws two propositions, one, the Christian church is a place of safety, two, the Christian church is a place of joy. You observe that here are two distinct propositions in reference to the church, making it a compound propositional division. You will notice also that each proposition is a logical proposition, hence he treats each as a logical proposition and proceeds thus. First proposition, the church is a place of safety, one, because it is far from the evil practices which distract the harmony of society and lead youth astray. Two, because the trains of thought that are brought before the mind are such as to banish evil suggestions. Three, because the moral standards of the church are so much higher than the standards of the world. Four, because it brings vividly to the view of men the retribution of the future. Second proposition, the church is a place of joy. One, because the intelligence communicated to the church is ever of a joyful character. Two, the experience of the church is a joyful experience. This finishes our view of the several forms of topical divisions. End of section 1